0: All right, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 18, and as you're turning there, let me just catch you up with a couple of things. Um, Dave, my microphone sounds like it's got some kind of tinniness to it. I don't know if it's bothering anybody else, but you don't want me going crazy up here. Um, and so, um, Matthew chapter 18, let, let's just make sure that we're keeping in view what it was that Jesus intended to say. Remember, this is one of the, f- one of the major discourses or conversations that Jesus is specifically having uh, on a much larger scale, which is unique to the gospel of Matthew. This is the fourth discourse, and it's all about how we are to dwell together as community or family. Oftentimes, it's referred to as the family discourse. So it's helping us understand what should we look like internally for the purpose of the life of the world because that makes a big difference on what we can do externally, right? Um, And so let me open with this question. What best indicates to the world what kind of family we are? What would be the greatest indication to the world what kind of family we are, and whether or not they would want anything to do with this very dysfunctional at times, very um, lively, very broken family, what would best indicate to them how we would treat them? How we treat each other, right? And remember, Jesus even said that in the Gospel of John. He said, the world will know who and whose you are by... The love you have for one another. And let me ask you this. When is that probably, well, not probably, when is that most prominently on display? When everything's good, right? No, no. When things go bad, when things get difficult. In fact, we spent some time with a family that we're very close to in Birmingham, Alabama, this past weekend. And just seeing the grace that the Lord has unfolded in their lives. And we were talking about this this idea of how, how do we create intimacy and community and those types of things. And it dawned on the both of us that our relationship went, uh, went to the depths that it went to when a bomb went off in the middle of their lives and we stepped into the aftermath. Right? That's always where you, where you really notice and discover what kind of friendships you have is when things are difficult, whether it's, it's sin that's committed or a diagnosis or the loss of a child, or the loss of a job, or any of those kinds of things are these incredible opportunities. Not that we pray for suffering, but we're in a fallen world and suffering is just guaranteed here, isn't it? If you live long enough, you're going to hurt. Sometimes you don't have to live very long to hurt. And so how we step into the middle of those things, tells the world exactly who we are. I've heard it said sometimes, and I don't think this is entirely true, actually, and it doesn't have to be true of us as a church, but that the church is the only place where they shoot their wounded. Now, that doesn't have to be true. And it's also true of our government, it's also true of lots of other organizations, but, but their point is salient in that it is most, most noxious and, and difficult when it is the church, when she should be so much different than that. The church is genuinely expected to be different than that, which is why it bothers even unbelievers when we don't behave like Christians ought to behave as one's being transformed into the image of Christ. And so remember how he started this whole thing off. And this question should be a thematic question for us because I think we all wrestle with it. Remember the disciples said, what what was their question that caused Jesus to go into this fourth lengthy discourse? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And if we're honest, we're all struggling with that at some level. We just genuinely want to be better than somebody else right? We we want somebody else to have some, at least in some form or fashion, at least a worse life than we do. Because misery loves to stand on the shoulders of others, which is odd. Um, But we do it, don't we? We all do. We all are are wrestling with comparison. Trust me, every single week, every week, this is my great struggle as I climb up on this, this platform. It's my struggle every week as I step down Right? It's everybody's struggle in some way, form, or fashion. So what a salient question. And remember how Jesus answered. He was so gracious. He calls a child into their midst, and he says, you guys are making some presuppositions. You think you're in the kingdom. How can you talk about who's the greatest when you're not even sure where you are and whose you are yet? Let me tell you, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter into the kingdom. And then he goes on to unpack what that childlike humility should look like and how we should love one another. Remember, he said, you need to remove all barriers to the flourishing of discipleship, both externally and internally, right? He said even to do it radically, he gave that whole discourse about if your right hand sins against you, cut it off. He's not talking about physically cutting your hand off, but he's talking about being um, radical in removing anything that causes us to stumble, And we're not. Frequently, we love to play with fire for a long period of time just to test our mettle. And we always lose, don't we? So lovingly, he's saying, get that out before it carries you away and makes you think that somehow you're great apart from the creator God. And he even said, remember who God is. He's the one that left the 99 to come after the one lost one. And you are always before him. Your face is always before him. And that's how much he loves you. And you too, as the church, should share the same heart. Which is, by the way, how we walk into Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Because this is now an exposition of doing exactly what God did. This is talking about going after the one. The one who wanders away in sin. And so often we've not made that connection to this passage. We've looked at it and said, all right, here is a jurisdictional or judicial punitive process. And that's how we oftentimes deal with it. Did you, w- remember what, what happens sometimes when people come up and they say, hey, so-and-so is really struggling with this. Uh, it's prayer requests, by the way. Um, uns- not unspoken because I just spoke it. But, but, and we say, but did you do Matthew 18? Right? And we mean well, I think we do. I think we mean well, but it automatically takes on this kind of very sterile, here are the steps and we forget what really is behind the heart, what should be the heart of the steps. This is about reconciliation. This is about going after family. That's why the language is going to be used here. We're going to look at here in just a second. So it's critical to us. It's critical to us to keep in view 1 through 14 before we can know anything about what he's about to say in 15 right? And so he is not giving us a punitive process. He's giving us a means of grace to love one another and to look like him, to be more created in his image. Because remember, he came after us. We didn't go after him. We didn't go seeking God and discover Jesus, right? Jesus came after us and revealed himself in full with a perfect life being shattered on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, where he continues to wait patiently to consummate his relationship with his bride, making intercession, gifting us with the Spirit and his word, and he's gonna come back and make all things new. And so that's the freight before we can even talk about how to go after one another, how to try to gain or win back someone. Listen to what Stanley Harawas says in his commentary on Matthew he says a community capable of protecting the little ones a community who cares for the lost sheep is a community that cannot cannot afford to overlook one another's sins because doing so keeps the community from embodying the life of grace determined by God's forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son did you hear what he just said? We, we cannot afford, as the community of grace, who is so cruciformly defined, we cannot afford to overlook someone's sin. And more importantly, we cannot overlook the means of grace by which they are to be restored and brought back in as family, not shunned. And so from this sermon, here's what I hope we would take home. When a brother or sister gets lost in sin, we are to pursue them With the full, do you hear that? Full resources of the church, both physical, why am I echoing? I know that's powerful. Like the echo maybe is like doing something in your heart right now. That's not the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's just something in the sound. We'll get that fixed in a second. Uh, Both physical and spiritual. The full resources of of the church, both physical and spiritual for the purpose of reconciliation. Now, why would the church do something like that? Because God did. When we were separated from him, when we were lost in sin, not just casual or neutral about it, but genuinely enemies against the gospel, he, as some have said, bankrupted heaven. He used the fullness of his resources in the Trinity. And he did. He sent Jesus, but not just Jesus, but the Holy Spirit as well. As Jesus ascends, he gives us the fullness of both physical and spiritual resources to reach us. And we, the church, are to do the same when someone wanders off. And yet, what are we so prone to do? We're oftentimes, we, we, we back up and we don't want to be anywhere near all that mess. And we oftentimes will back up and we'll say, well, I hope the Spirit does something in them to bring them back. Instead of going near them, not for the purpose of of judging them, as so often we can come across, or crushing their spirit, which even Paul in 2 Corinthians, after he gave that long dissertation in 1 Corinthians 5, in 2 Corinthians he says, now listen, I didn't tell you guys to to leave them crushed and broken without love. you got to remind them who and whose they are. It's not about judgment, it's about love. Yes, you had to get the old leaven out. So that they would recognize the value of what they had, so they'd be drawn back. Excommunication is always for the purpose of return. It was true for us. Exile was always the, for the purpose of exodus back home. Judgment always, in some form or fashion, true judgment, good judgment, precedes redemption. Redemption. And so that purpose, this process, this, this thing that we are called to do here in Matthew 18 is a loving call. And we have to remember why we are called to do it. We are to use the fullness of our resources to let people know that God loves them and desires them. Instead of just letting them wander away and die. I am significantly and personally convicted by this. I've been convicted for a few months now as I read Ezekiel 34, which really is in the background of this text, by the way, especially 11 through 14, where God says, I, the shepherd, will go after the lost and the wandering. And as I sat before the Lord, and he said, and this is how I will judge my shepherds. Made me realize, Lord, there's some people that I've said, (laughs) good, I'm glad they're gone. I won't lift a finger to go after them because they're just going to be problematic. As if all of us as sinners are not problematic, by the way. When, kind of, when we get cranked up or turnt, as the kids say these days. All right, let's turn to the text Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. Let's read this together. (laughs) Hear God's word. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you. And him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, language here is so critical, right? So it's critical that we understand who's being talked about so that we don't try to take and apply this process in the wrong way to the wrong people, right? And so straight away it says, if your brother, this whole thing has been about family and community. So who is a brother? Who, who would be a brother or sister in this case? Which one who professes Christ, right? So is this a process that we're to use with our neighbor that we find out is in some sort of sexual sin or is embezzling money? No, there's other processes for that, right? There's other wisdom in the Proverbs for how to deal with those things. There is a way to love those people as well, but this is a unique process for the sake, it's it's a key, if you will, that is given to the authority of the church. And it says straight away that we are to deal with each other in this way as family. Now, there's another critical word that comes right after that, and it's the word sins. Now, is this any peccadillo that you may have? You might know what a peccadillo is. Uh, we ran into this and people said, that sounds like something only Richard Sibbs would say in the bruised reed. It is a small thing. A peccadillo is a small thing that is just something that's you. It's your weakness. It's your preference. It's you saying, I don't like when someone says this this way. I don't like the way that person greets me. I don't like the way that person says goodbye to me. I don't like the way Cameron takes 15 minutes to get to the text. I don't like, I mean, those are, those, that's not sin, by the way. I know some of you like for it to be so you could confront me and then we could fix it, but it's not. It's just not. And so sin is so specific here. It is that which separates them from God and ultimately from you as family. Truly separates. So it's only that which is a violation of God's law and God's will. It's not any and everything. Now, how do you deal with those other things? Are there processes by which we should deal with those other things if you've got something that's grating on you? then yes, you should deal with it, but the Proverbs speak to that. There's other means and methods. And if you know you've offended somebody, if you know that the way you greet them bothers them, then Matthew 7 says, leave what you got at the altar and go make it right with them so they can be unburdened. So there's a, that's a whole nother process. But this, this is about family who gets separated from God and it begins to move within our heart a desire to see them restored, reconciled. So what does that mean posture wise for us as we go to them do you come marching in you know uh, with your bible open your fist pointing i know some of you are thinking man that's what i would expect you to do it because you yell at us week in and week out and you gesture no that's preaching i'm serious that's proclamation and i'm deadly serious about this this is proclamation this is a different process than me coming to you as a priest who loves you deeply and walking with you through the fire, which, for those of you who know me well, you know I will do. That's different. And so we should, all, we should be a community of people, all who do this, right? This isn't just for the preacher. This isn't just for the leadership of the church. This is for every child of God, every. And so the posture that we should take is one of brokenness, that someone would be separated from God, but that means we've got to know the pain that actually is being separated from God. That means we have to understand the gospel and the actual gravity of the situation, which I think sometimes we've minimized, right? We've kind of minimized, eh, you know, if they're kind of messing around, whatever, they'll figure it out, it'll get better. No, no, often it doesn't, not just on its own. And we have a responsibility to love each other well, to come to each other when something begins to actually carry us away. And so that means we also have to know one another well enough to know when we're being carried away, right? That means that we have to be a community, a family enough to have enough capital already established, because I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to confront somebody that doesn't know you very well? And it goes something like this. Hey, uh, I noticed that uh, you were kind of mean to your wife in the foyer. I don't quite know your name, but I'm going assume you're a brother or sister in Christ because you're at Christ Community, and I think you ought, to, you ought to tone that down, right? How do you think that would go? How many of you would receive that really well? You'd be like, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Mm. <laughs> so we got to have enough capital with one another, so, so this is what I'm saying. So if this becomes, if this is a critical hallmark, a critical service, a critical means of grace of the church, then there's some things that we need to be doing now that are not directly this, but that we're forming community, not just showing up on Sunday, but loving each other well throughout the week, such that we've got some people that can speak into our lives. We need that. I need that, Right? I've said this before, if you love me well and you see me going astray, you've got to tell me, you've got to love me enough to come tell me. Don't worry about if I'm going to yell, kick, scream, cuss, invoke philosophy, point to some book by Calvin. Don't worry about all that. Love me well and see what happens. And if, I've, and if you discover that I don't receive the gospel well, guess what you should do? Run. Go find a church church where the pastor will receive it because it's it's dangerous. It's very dangerous for you to sit under a man who does not have the humility to receive what is so necessary for us all. Right? And so, so find out. Don't be afraid because you need to go ahead and know because I'm dangerous to you otherwise. Right? And you're dangerous to each other. And so here, it's talking about family and loving family well enough to recognize that sin separates from God, sin separates from family, and robs us of the means of grace. And so he's saying, go after them for the purpose of gaining them back, not driving them further away. So this is something that has to be prayerfully considered, and you need to go as one who looks like that humble child that was talked about earlier in Matthew 18, you need to go broken on their behalf, trusting that the Spirit has prepared the way. I've done this more times than I've ever wanted to, trust me. And sometimes it's worked out great, and sometimes they rejected outright, but at least they were rejecting the real thing, right? Hopefully what they were rejecting is not some facsimile or distortion of the gospel, but they were able to actually if you're going to reject something, reject the real deal, not some, some bad carbon copy. And so it's not about results. The results doesn't dictate whether or not you did what was right. That's what I'm trying to get to here. The results are up to the Lord who is moving in their heart. And it's up to them as they are to respond to the gospel. That's not on you. Your job is to at least show them their family. And it may be that all you're doing is scattering seed, which may, give, may not even grow up until five years later we need to be willing to do it for one another, to love one another well for the purpose of gaining back family. Now, this process is actually not even a New Testament process. If you would, because I just think it's important every once in a while to read from Leviticus, let's turn to Leviticus 19 and see that there's grace there too. And Jesus is is really just pointing to something that, that had always been part of the heart of the community of the children of God. We're in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. And I love this. I love that this is part of the heart of the law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, what's happened there? Why would you even need to hold a grudge in your heart unless somebody had done something against you? Why would you need to take vengeance unless sin had been committed? What did he just say? He just basically said, go to them and see them restored to you, a brother. He's, all he did was quote Matthew 18, 15, but the Old Testament version, actually Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. And what's amazing about this is, again, having a heart for Psalm 32 for everyone, that, that people would be freed from the burden that sin is, right? And recognizing how destructive it is all the way down. Its corrosion does not stop until all of the glory of God is destroyed in someone. Remember, Satan is not looking for followers. He's looking for food. He doesn't care if you follow him. In fact, it's so much better if you don't. You're actually messing up his brand when you scratch 666 in your forehead and wear all black. It doesn't help the movement. What he wants you to do is think you're something you're not and to twist and distort the gospel and think that you are doing good and being judgmental. Or think that you are doing good by doing cheap grace, saying sin doesn't matter. That's what he really wants. And we can't forget that. And so this first step is one of great love. And the second step is too. by the way, notice what he says. He's just quoted Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 19 here. He's calling, this is not even a, ju- this sounds judicial, but recognize it's not. He's not calling for two people who have seen that person's sin. That's not what's happening here. In fact, you're the one who saw that they're in sin. You're to grab two witnesses to make sure you don't have it wrong. The witnesses are actually to protect the one who seems lost. It's to protect them from you being manipulative and trying to say that they're doing something they're not, actually. And so this, too, is a step of great love because it's saying the sin is not what's majorly important. It's the person. You understand that? The sin is not what is fully on display. It's, all, it's always about the person, the individual. And so you grab two witnesses to say, hey, listen, I think this is what's going on, but let's go talk to them and see. Maybe I got it wrong. It takes great humility to grab two other wise believers and maybe have them rebuke you because you bore false witness. Not intentionally. It happens. Sometimes we think we see, and it's just not true. There's more to the story. And this is a protective step that lets that person know they are of great value, that three people would take the time to come to them again to try to make sure that this is right and that they can be restored and that there is no sanction against them that is unjust or unworthy. And then the third step, if that doesn't work and if their sin is confirmed by those two witnesses, then you take it before the church. And again, think about this, how this is protective because if the whole church is not in agreement that what they're doing is sin. You can't go any further in the process. The whole church has to agree, this is not good. You need to come home. And so there's a gravity that is shown to the church itself that sin is destructive, and the weight of all of the members turning to that one person and saying, we love you so much, repent and come home. Think of how powerful that would be to know that 150 people loved you so much that they would lay aside in great humility and say, this is wrong, especially in this culture. And that we love you and we want you to stay a part of our family. We can't can't function as well without you. What a great picture of love that would be instead of it being this sterile and awful judicial punitive process. This is about reconciliation. This is about what God intended. This takes great humility. It also takes great humility for us to be willing to submit ourselves to such a process. How many of you struggle with radical American individualism? Every hand should go up, let me just save you the trip. Right, we all do, right? Ask ask my wife how much I like being asked questions. I'm just, I'm confessional, right? I need to work on that. But I, all my whole life, anybody, when I come in from something, somebody asks me a question, for some reason, it's like, why do you need to know that? I'm immediately suspicious. I've got issues. Jesus loves me too. He's working on it. But I mean, I just, I'm funky about that for some reason. Now you asking me questions, for some reason, I can be nicer to you because you're not bought in. She is. And so I think I can be mean to her. Isn't that twisted? And so, so, we all have things, right? We all do. And, 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 but but to, to know that God loves us and that we, are, we need to submit ourselves. Even I must be willing to submit myself to the session of elders. So here's what I want you to know. Anytime that you come to me with something about me, one of the things I, I, I try to do very immediately is take and give it to the elders. So that I don't make it just go away, like just shove it under the rug, Right? And, and I have to now be dealt with in a communal setting. They now are involved in the process pretty immediately so they can say, yeah, Cameron, I think, I think they're right. You need to deal with this. It also protects, protects you so that I don't just do away with it, right? And we all should have kind of the same thing as far as submitting to the church. If someone were to come with to you, hopefully, and said, hey, Tom, Oki, uh, I know you're in sin. You got chickens that are bothering your neighbors, and that's sin. That's really not sin, by the way. It's not sin, um, as it turns out. Um, but, but if I came to you with something like that, if Tom were in good community and recognized the beauty of the process, Tom, without me having to do it, would then turn to some people that he knew loved him and say, hey, this has been brought to me. What do you think I should do with it? We should be a community of vulnerability that is willing to set ourselves open and say, hey, do you see this? And if you're not, that's the canary in the coal mine. If you are unwilling to be known, then that that signals to you straight away something unhealthy is at work in you and it's gonna harm you deeply someday. And that's God's grace to show that to you. Is God beating you up about that? Is God super disappointed in you who are a butt dust? We had to send Jesus and give you the Holy Spirit and the Bible and all these things. Is he mad at you for being weak? No, he's not. But he's calling you in his grace. He's provided you everything you can to be strong in him. And so when it goes before the church, it is always for the purpose of that person feeling the weight of love that calls them home. And would that, that would be true of us here at Christ Community. That is, that is the whole goal. And we'll fumble and stumble in that. And we'll need to correct sometimes. And we'll need to be told, hey, the tone could have been better or different. We'll get through that. But this is what we need to always be pushing toward is that we're family, not an institution, not a well-oiled machine organization. We are family. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this process. I love what he says in his commentary on Matthew called The Church Book. He says, The sinner is taken seriously as a person. Did you hear that? This process should always take the sinner seriously seriously as a person and is treated, as the sequence shows, with an impressive carefulness. Anytime we go after someone, there should be an impressive, gracious, merciful carefulness with which we deal with one another in sin. Real lovelessness, wrong judging, is to drop another person altogether. Without any attempt at seeking conversations, repentance or reconciliation at all. And again, I would say to you, what does the world think that we do with problematic people? Drop them. With no opportunity for them to be restored, no opportunity for them to, again, taste of the means of grace, And that doesn't have to be true, by the way. It just doesn't have to be true. We have the power of the Spirit. We have God's Word. We have the finished work of Christ. We have His intercession. We have everything we need to do this well. So let us be known for the love that we have for one another. Part of that is you have to kind of assess yourself, right? Each of us individually has to assess ourselves. And I ask you, are you more inclined to seek judgment and punishment or forgiveness and reconciliation when you discover that a brother or sister is guilty of sin? Which are you more inclined toward? Now, just because you're inclined toward judgment, which by the way, I am numbered among you, okay? I am a huge justice guy. On certain issues, I can be really gracious on some issues, like I'm a mix probably if I'm honest, but on some issues, I, the, the, the teeth come out, like I am, I am angry about it, and that, that this Matthew 18 serves as a check against that. Don't be afraid, as the wolf said to the prey, you know, <laughs> don't be afraid. Uh, but, but truly, we're probably, if we're honest, we're probably a mix on this. You've got certain issues that are like huge hot-button issues. Like if you find out that somebody that you've been really, really close to, you find out they're having the secret, weird, like crazy affair, it, it would just, you would just be so disgusted with them, you wouldn't want to be around them anymore. Or some of you have huge issues when it comes to children and any, any sort of neglect that would happen to a child. And some of you have huge issues when it comes to the treatment of the poor or racial reconciliation or, or any, and other, any and every other kind of justice issue. Some of you get really angry when you find out people are cheating on their taxes or using any and every means necessary to try to gain for themselves what God could provide more of if they didn't do all that kind of stuff. So so don't let this question be a trap in the sense of you think it's all or none, really what you need to do is kind of think through an issue-by-issue type basis, right? So take time this Lord's Day and, and really just ask. I know this is probably not a fun Lord's Day question. Maybe wait till Monday or Tuesday. I don't care. But this is a great question for you to ask because, again, it sets the tone. It sets the stage for how you would then respond. And so... Notice what he says. Is, is He's given the church authority in that last verse that we read, verse 18. He says, That which you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That which you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And what he's talking about is that whom the church sanctions. Like it, the full step process. Now not, not, let's be careful. If the church wrongly sanctions someone... They are not bound in heaven. So this is not a carte blanche authority given to the church. This is authority given to the church who does it biblically. If these people biblically are in sin and, and refusing, then even heaven goes as brass. Even in heaven they are bound. The Lord will will treat them as if they had wandered away. But notice what he does. He always goes after them still. He will continue to pursue even those who are bound. But those who are loosed, those who are rendered not guilty or repentant and forgiven, they are the same in heaven. There's not two different justices here, which is really important because some of us can, can feel like that there's two different justices, right? We may be okay at the, at the horizontal level, or, uh, but we're not real sure if we're okay at the vertical level, right? Sometimes we feel like, hey, we're okay, but I'm, I think God's still mad at me. No, what the Lord is saying is, when done biblically and according to Scripture, that which is admitted, the keys are given to the church to do this well. So you're not, you are not up for two judgments. That's good news, actually. And amen. But again, what we have to be careful of is the, char- the church is not given carte blanche authority. It must be biblical. All right, if you would turn back to the text, let's look at verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, a couple of really important parts here is he says again, which means he's reiterating something that he's already said earlier in Matthew 18. And so what he's saying is when when two of you come together for the biblical purpose of reconciling one who is lost and you come together to pray for that person, all of the spiritual promises are at your fingertips. All of heaven, all of the spiritual availability is at your fingertips, right? So when when we gather together for the purpose of seeing someone reconciled, there's a great spiritual power that is part of this. Now, if you're cynical like I am and can be, sometimes you doubt, right? Sometimes you wrestle with, eh, well, no, man, this person's pretty lost. I understand, but we got to re- push back against that cynicism and say, no, because I'm standing here. For those of you who didn't know me back in the day, I'm, not, I'm just not convinced you can get more lost and angry than I was. But that was my own personal experience. And for me to stand here, I can't doubt that. There's no way. The testimony says otherwise, nor can you. And so what's beautiful about this is is Jesus is saying, listen, when you get together for the purpose of reconciliation, I am standing in the midst of you with all the access that you can have to the spiritual things. What a, a promise. What a promise that he gives us. And you know what this is a foreshadowing of? What verse does this sound a whole lot like that comes way later in Matthew? The Great Commission. And so he's already setting the table to help the church understand that your one job, yeah, I love that, you, you had one job. Your hour, our one job is to make disciples. We have no other calling in this world. And I know some of you would like to come up and challenge me on that, but do you understand that worship is discipleship? Do you understand that evangelism is discipleship? Do you understand that that discipline is discipleship? Everything the church is called to do. Do you understand the Lord's table is discipleship? Baptism is discipleship? All of it, all that we have been given to do is discipleship. And so the question for us is, are we making disciples? And if we are not, we are an organization, not a family, not a church. I know that can land heavy on some of you because you're like, man, you're killing us. You've given us all this stuff to think about and do. We're supposed to love the poor. We're supposed to love people that have pigmented skins of various kinds. We're we're supposed to take a day off. We're supposed to come to worship on time and try to sit for an hour and a half. We're supposed to, all this stuff we're supposed to do. But no, no, I don't, I don't, you're not supposed to do any of that. You get to. You are empowered to by the grace that God has given. If you have any doubt about that, read any and everything Paul wrote. If you just think Paul shouldn't be in the Bible, that's a different issue. You probably should find a a Unitarian church or something. Uh, Because it's not where we are. And I love you, but you can't throw out, we can't pick and choose, because once we get into that, we're in trouble. Um, but, but But the point is, all that I, And think about it. The day that you are to take off is the day we call the Lord's Day Sabbath. That The Lord is so graciously given to you to accomplish any and all of these things. He gave you a gift. And we're going to whine about the gift. And we're going to say that we shouldn't do any of these things. Do you know whose image you're being created in? Do you? Because that God, whose image you're being created into by being transformed into the image of Christ, comes after the lost that God disciples, that God takes a day off, that God loves, that God forgives, that God loves the poor, 200 plus verses, that God loves people with pigmented skin, including ours, lighter pigmented though we may be. Some of us. Sorry, Jules. So understand this very clearly we are being transformed into this image. I am not heaping upon you burdens that are legalism by any stretch of the imagination, and grace is not what lets you off the hook. Grace is actually what empowers you to do any and all of it. Do we understand that? Because sometimes I hear people say things like, I don't know if there's any grace in being told we should do something. No, grace is actually telling you what it is you should do instead of leaving it a riddle so you wind up before him, i.e. Allah, and have him say you didn't get it right. Well, I didn't know what to do. I don't care. You're going to hell. But God loves us so much that he says, listen, here's what I want you to do because I've done it. I've paved the way. Make disciples. It'll be the most amazing thing you'll ever do. You will see my faithfulness rise in a way that you can under no other circumstance. Yes, that includes sometimes serving the poor. Yes, that includes sometimes racial reconciliation. Yes, that sometimes includes going after someone who sins. Yes, that sometimes includes catechizing your child. Yes, that includes sometimes taking a day off. Yes, that includes taking communion. Yes, that includes baptism. Yes, that includes all these things. But you're not doing it alone. You're doing it as family. And You're not called to do all of it, remember? But there's various ways which we can participate in it, and amen. So what we see here is just a picture of the gospel and the church is handed the same thing that Jesus did and told to do likewise in his image. So Matthew 18, when we say, have you practiced Matthew 18, what we ought to say is, have you practiced the gospel? Have you loved these folks well? Are we truly family? Do we care when someone wanders and gets lost? I can't notice everything. I'm highly relational, but... I'm about, out of, I'm about out of space in some respects. And I know that bothers some. I can't be at everything. You've got to start loving each other. Well, I can't disciple everybody. I just can't. Um, and we, we've got to, as a family, grow in this regard. Amen? Because you will get to taste and see that the Lord is good instead of me hogging all the good food, which I'll do, by the way, because I'm a foodie. All right. So who do you know that is currently wandering or lost that you could gather with someone else to pray for? To pray for their reconciliation and return to Christ and His church? And for many of you who are married couples, you ain't got to go far to gather with somebody. And this ought to be a part of all of our prayer lives is thinking through who is outside the family who is not tasting and seeing all that is good who is cutting themselves off from the means of grace. And be diligent to begin praying for them. That's really the first step if you think about it. And then ask the Lord how you might participate in the beauty of seeing them come home in return. If we were willing to do that, I would not even caution to guess, but would state very firmly, there'd be lots for us to celebrate soon and over the years. So may we have the heart of God the Father who went after the lost. May we be willing to at least pray, at most pray, and then be willing vessels to carefully, lovingly make sure that even though they've wandered off, that they are loved and that they matter. Takes time, doesn't it? We gotta be willing to give that time. For my friends who in Birmingham, I won't tell you the whole story, but I sat with my friend Justin and wept with him on his front porch three nights a week, three hours every night for a year. For a year. As I sat with them and watched Amy reading to those children about the love of God, every single second was worth it. Not for one second would I question, was it worth it? Could we have have done a more efficient process? Could we have done something simpler maybe? Every, every second was providentially needed. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. To be able to now talk to them about the love of God in a way that there's no other way they would have known. Those three beautiful kids um, who call me uncle and wouldn't be there if, I, if the Lord had not called us into the midst of what had blown apart. So what do we walk away with here? One, Matthew 18, 15 through 20 teaches us that we are to pursue those wandering or lost in sin with the full physical resources of the church for the purpose of reconciliation. That means you, the witnesses, the church's church's witness and testimony. Two, that when we gather to pray for the lost, to make use of all of our spiritual resources, Jesus is present and God responds. You are getting into the heart of the Father when you gather to pray for the lost. He loves that aroma as it comes before him. and We do it, we just do it too little. I wish we did it more. I wish I did it more. And so as we close out, I want to encourage you in this to see Matthew 18 not as judiciary process, but as a loving gift to a family of people so that no one would be lost, so that no one would wander away and not be told how much they are loved and pursued. Amen? I want to pray for us. We've got one last song and then the benediction. Remember, the mills will be outside, so take time to talk to them as well. Don't forget the bake sale next week as we have an opportunity to love our friends in Kenya. Um, And do take time this week to wrestle with some of these things because we're all in different places on this one and it will be something that you need to take time with. It's not something that's just going to up and be fixed, and you're going to up and be able to do quickly. It is hard. I admit that. And anything that we can do to help you in the midst of this, to serve you in any way as leaders, if you need prayer after the service, grab one of us. We're here. Don't worry about the chairs being put up. That's not to shoo you out of here. Uh, It's just a process we got to do as an exile church. No, we're not an exile. Uh, I'm sorry. As a tabernacling church, that's different. (laughs) It's a different church, actually, Uh, and I'd rather be the tabernacling church. So let me pray. Father, thank you for, for you doing all of this. God, you came for us yourself, and then there needed to be others who would come with you. Christ was needed. The Holy Spirit was needed, and now the church that is formed through that entire redemptive process is available to redeem and pursue the lost. May we be a church that is known for our love for one another. May we be a church who's not afraid of the messiness of sin. May we be a church who is not afraid of being vulnerable and accountable and under the authority of a church that longs to see us identified by the love we have for one another. May we have many opportunities for the people of the world, those who are not part of this family currently are orphans, that they would see that love and be drawn in. In Christ's name, amen.